so I just thought I'd start off with a fun fact. Um, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet, and I even work for a nonprofit organization. <laughs> That's like a little a church joke. But um, actually, so to start off today, <laughs> I, uh, uh, I just did a talk, um, actually two talks, at uh, the missions conference. This just happened here last Saturday. And um, I got this video from a conference I just was at in Denver, um, just because we're going to be talking about international students today. So I thought, kind of to prime the pump, we're going to to learn a fun cultural uh, skill to have, and that is how to do the Indian head bob. So I think to start out, we have a funny little video we're going to play. Everybody understands the two international nods. This is yes. This is no. But not many understand the Indian nod. This one. You can never decipher the nod with just the movement of the head. No. You must pay attention to two things the position of the eyebrows and the speed of the nod. The mid-brow. This means alright or fine. The faster the nod, the more fine it is. The low-brow. This indicates being in agreement, although not fully convinced. The lower the brow and the speed of the nod, the higher the unconvincedness. Is that even a word? Next, the high-brow. This shows certain high levels of agreement that the yes not can never provide. It's more like, oh yeah, or ring it on. The higher the brow and vigor, the more the excitement. A word of caution. The nod can also mean other expressions. Appreciation, sarcasm, or the person could just be dancing. So now, feel free to go try that at home. Everybody. <laughs> uh, I, uh, so like James said, um, I was born here in Bozeman, Montana. I grew up um, going to school just uh, in a city next to this, Manhattan. So I went to Manhattan Christian High School, um, all through high school. And that's kind of the first time that the Lord laid upon my heart a passion to reach international students. I had about, um, probably about 20 people in my graduating class, I think. And out of those 20, there about maybe six of them were international students. And so... Uh, back in high school, we had study hall at the same time, and so I started up doing uh, like a Bible study for international students, because even though they were coming to a Christian school, they didn't have the background, and so I thought, well, I can do a Bible study with them. And so that's kind of the first time that the Lord started impressing upon my heart a passion uh, to reach international students. And so from there, like James mentioned, the Lord took me down to Chicago. So on the screen there, you'll see a picture of Chicago. is the third biggest city uh, in the U.S., so I went to school actually pretty much downtown, which was pretty fun. So I went to Moody Bible Institute for four years, and I, studied, um, I started out studying intercultural ministries, uh, and then I switched to pastoral studies is what I graduated in. Um, and then after school, I was privileged to work with an organization called Bridges International, um, which is anyone here familiar with Bridges International at all? I hadn't heard of it till Chicago. So um, it's, basically, it's very similar to ISI. It's basically Cruise International Student Ministry. So I worked out in Chicago with them for um, the last three years, um, working with students. And then the Lord uh, sovereignly brought me back to my hometown here, Bozeman, and I'm currently working at Grace, um, specifically with Cross Life International, which is like the, um, a branch of Cross Life, which reaches out to the international students at MSU. Um, yeah, so there's another picture of Chicago, which is kind of fun. So um, in doing preparation for my talk on Saturday, 
I found a really neat prayer that was, um, they actually don't know who wrote it, but it was written by someone um, and published in the InterVarsity Prayer Magazine. They think it was probably written back in the 1940s, and so I just thought I'd read that as we get started here. It says, Lord Jesus, you have told us to take your gospel to all peoples of all lands, but we find this hard. It means leaving our families, friends, and culture to tell your message in a foreign land and language to an alien people. Many of them already have a religion which is interwoven into their whole culture and daily lifestyle. Besides, we Americans are not welcome in some parts of the world and are even forbidden to talk openly about you in certain countries. And the cost. If we really tried to reach the world in this generation, it would bankrupt us all. So we propose an, alter an alternative plan. You send the people to us. Have them come at their own expense and learn English before they come. Make them hungry for our friendship and willing to go to church with us. Send the young, teachable ones. Send those who are bright and vigorous, who will someday be leaders in their home countries. Arrange for them to stay for several years so we can win a hearing for the gospel and have time to teach them after they become believers. Send many from places where missionaries are forbidden to go, such as Iran, Saudi Arabia, and China. How many, Lord? Oh, say 450,000, well distributed around the country so that the lots of churches and individual Christians can take part. If you will do this, then we promise to make sharing your li our lives and our faith with these people a priority. We will get to know them, offer them our friendship, and try to learn how to explain your gospel to them clearly. This all sounds like a lot to ask, but you can do it, can't you? I just think that's such a neat prayer because amazingly, now as we look back from the 1940s, the Lord not only answered that prayer, but he is um, way over and exceeded it. So today, there is currently 1.3 million international students studying in the U.S., which is, I think, incredible. And as you can see there, um, the top countries that they come from are China, India, South Korea, Saudi Arabia, Canada, Vietnam, Taiwan, Japan, Mexico, and Brazil. Um, so many of the world's top major religions are all um, originating in these countries. So like James mentioned, uh, back in 2017, MSU had 759 international students. Currently they have, I think, somewhere between 650 to 750 students. So they actually have a slight decrease um, this last year, but there's still basically the nations are coming to our doorstep at MSU, which is so exciting. Um, so this next slide just demonstrates kind of some fun facts about international students. So 300 presidents and prime ministers all around the world um, that are currently uh, prime ministers and presidents and stuff like that were one time international students in the US. So that's kind of small. I don't know if you can read that, but you can see up there the crown. Um, or the, the Prime Minister of Japan, uh, former Prime Minister of Pakistan, King of Jordan, and then the list goes on and on. Uh, so that next slide shows some of the universities where they're coming from. So a lot of them go to MIT and Harvard, um, but they're also coming here to MSU. Actually, I was doing some research, and even the current president at MSU, um, President Cruzado, was once an international student. She's originally um, from overseas. So many of these international students that are coming to the U.S. for an education are from very, very kind of upper echelon, I guess you could say, of their countries because they, their families often have lots of wealth, which is why they can come to the U.S. Oftentimes they have very good grades, um, um, lots of leadership potential, and then most of them end up going back home to their countries where, like this slide demonstrates, they do get positions of power and leadership and things like that. Um, and even if the students themselves are not necessarily going to become leaders, often they are connected to leaders. So for instance, when I worked in Chicago, 
Um, I made a friend with an Indian guy, and we used to meet up for coffee and different stuff like that. And uh, many months into our friendship, he was really humble, and so he didn't tell me a whole lot about just exactly who his family was. But it turns out he was the grandson of the wealthiest family in northern India. Um, and we became good friends. And then one of my Saudi friends in Chicago, um, as we got to talking and got to know each other, his uncle was the guy that uh, designed the infrastructure of the kingdom of Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. So I was like, wow. So does your uncle like know the king? And turns out his uncle is on the advisory board of the king of Saudi Arabia. So the king gave his family like 14 cars and unlimited gasoline for life and just a bunch of cool stuff. So you don't really know who you're going to meet. Um, another Chinese guy I was uh, really blessed to disciple, and actually he came to faith. Uh, his grandpa started up the biggest pharmaceutical company in China. Um, and now that student, my, my friend's name is Bill. I should have put a picture of Bill up there, but he um, is currently in Chicago getting his PhD, and he's made a bunch of breakthroughs in medical imaging. Um, so he was working originally on the Tesla self-driving car in, in his master's degree, and now that he's a PhD, he designed some new like x-ray thing that can spot cancer. And so he's like a, a pretty big deal now in Chicago, which is really neat, and just a faithful witness for the Lord. And so you just never know who you're going to talk to. Um, Let's see. So Acts, um, I think this is a really cool slide, um, and it, I think it demonstrates that it's not by coincidence that these students are coming here. In Acts 17, 26 through 27, it says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. So God is perfect, purposely sending these future world leaders to us. Um, so now we get into kind of the need. So even though it's very exciting that these international students are coming, the nations are coming to us, the sad fact is that 20% of them, only about 20%, get connected to a Christian or to a church or a Christian organization during their time in the U.S. So basically that means that 80% of them aren't getting connected to Christians, um, and that statistic doesn't even include the ones that aren't connected to just Americans in general. Um, often international students feel very isolated when they come to the U.S. because, yes, Normally they know English, right, because they're coming to study in the U.S. Oftentimes their, um, maybe their conversational English, you could say, is very weak, and so they feel very shy, and often they'll just stay in their dorm room because they're embarrassed to reach out and to try their English and to mess up and be embarrassed and stuff like that. So oftentimes if you see internationals, they're kind of in a clump together, and they're often with other people from their own culture, from their own country or countries that are similar. They um, like to just play video games sometimes because... It's scary for them to go out into cities and to make new friends. Um, so, so there's just this big need to reach out to these international students. Um, okay, so now, before we start the video, I'm going I'm to show a quick video. So basically, um, international students, and just if you, I guess, incorporate the world, you can kind of break it down into three major worldviews. Okay, so there's guilt and innocence, fear and power, and then there's honor and shame. I don't know, has anyone heard of those three worldviews before? Okay, some of you, I'm sure you take missions classes and stuff like that, but um, in doing research, I found a really good video that's based off of a book called The 3D Gospel, which demonstrates um, kind of specifically how the Bible addresses these three worldviews and how you can share the gospel to them. So we're going to show that really quick, and then we're going to talk about kind of how are effective ways that we can inter uh, minister to international students. So we can play that video now. Go isn't the whole story in missions. Tell adds to it, but that doesn't complete the story either. What if you did go? What if you did tell? And what if it was all in a language your audience didn't understand? That message would fall broken to the ground. Missions is more than just go and tell. 
It's go and tell a message that can be understood well enough it can be acted upon. Language can certainly get in the way, but worldview is perhaps a bigger obstacle. Worldviews are lenses through which we see and interpret the messages and events around us, and they are often particular to cultures. If you shared the gospel from your worldview with a person from another worldview, would they be able to understand it? Or more importantly, would it resonate in their heart deeply enough that they would act on it? Communicating the gospel effectively starts with understanding the three main worldviews, guilt and innocence, honor and shame, fear and power. Think about how the West operates. Individualism and rights are valued. Morality is based on right and wrong as defined by the law. You have the right to your own opinions, your own beliefs, even your own path to happiness, as long as you don't break the law. But if you do, the only solution is to suffer a punishment in proportion to your crime. Most Western cultures are in a constant search for the solution to guilt. Much of the Middle East and Asia operates differently. Family and community are valued above everything else. Personal relationships, reputation, and social status are the primary motivators. Come from a good family, do good things in the community, follow the social norms, and you will have honor. But do something dishonorable, or have something dishonorable happen to you, and both you and your community will be shamed. As such, these cultures do their best to avoid shame. Some of Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, and most tribal areas operate differently still. Reality is built on the spiritual realm just as much as it is on the physical realm. Most of their decisions hinge on the perceived positive or negative reactions from the spirits around them. This results in taboos, superstitions, spells, and sacrifices dominating these cultures. And it results in these cultures living in a constant state of fear. So if you are going and telling, what is good news to each of these worldviews? Let's look to Jesus for the answers. Jesus shows his ability to cleanse us of our sins in his interaction with the woman caught in adultery. The Pharisees bring her to Jesus, cite the law she has broken, and lay out the ascribed punishment of stoning. She is guilty, and her punishment is clear. So Jesus invites any of the accusers who haven't sinned to cast the first stone. One by one, the Pharisees walk away. Jesus is the only one who rightfully can punish her for her sins, but instead, he forgives her. Ephesians 1.7 says this, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. For those being crushed under the weight of their sin and see themselves as guilty, Jesus offers the forgiveness that makes us innocent before God. What about those who are hiding their faces from God because they feel like outcasts due to the shame of their failures? Jesus tells the story of a son who shamed his family by squandering his inheritance, falling to his sinful desires, and ending up so low he wished he could eat pig food. But when he returns to the household covered in dirt, wearing tattered garments, and carrying the shame of his past, his father runs to him, covers that shame with the father's own robe, puts a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and throws a feast to welcome him home. Ephesians 1.5 says that in love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And Ephesians 2.19 expounds on that sentiment. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, 
but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Jesus restores the relationship humanity had with God, covers our shame, and grants us the honor of being in God's kingdom. And what about those who spend much of their lives using sacrifices, spells, and superstitions to appease the spirits that strangle them with fear? Jesus calmed storms, multiplied bread and fish, walked on water, healed the sick, and cast out demons as a prelude to his power over the spirit realm before demonstrating his total power over sin and death. Ephesians 1, 19-21 The power that God grants us is the same as the mighty strength he exerts when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Jesus has all authority, and when his Spirit dwells in us, he gives us that same authority. So when you tell the good news, in guilt-innocence cultures, tell that God sent his Son to live the life we couldn't live, die the death that we deserved, and pay the price for our sins so that we should not perish but have eternal life. Tell that our guilt is taken away by his death and resurrection. To those living in honor-shame cultures, tell that there is a Father in heaven who through Christ has established a place of honor for them in his kingdom. Like the father welcomes the prodigal son back into his household by throwing a party to honor him in front of the entire community, tell them that our Holy Father is preparing a feast for all of his children and heirs when his kingdom comes into its fullness. And to those who are in fear power cultures who are afraid of spirits, who feel like they are cursed, or who constantly have to offer sacrifices for some semblance of freedom, tell them that Jesus showed his power and authority over nature, evil, sickness, and curses all throughout the Gospels. Tell them that they can give their allegiance to the Son of God who walks on water, raises the dead, calms storms, and destroys the works of the enemy. The Gospel doesn't have to be twisted or massaged to satisfy the needs of the tribes, nations, and people groups of the world. It addresses every need head on. Jesus answers the heart cries of every individual and every culture. If you're looking for innocence, Jesus washes away the stains of your sin so you can stand before God blameless. If you're in need of honor and acceptance, Jesus makes you a citizen of the kingdom and a child and heir of the king. And if in the fear of your weakness you're seeking power, Christ's death-defeating power is promised to dwell within you. That's good news. Now go and tell the nations. There we go. Okay, so have any of you heard of that, those three concepts at all before, about worldview and stuff like that? So the first time I heard that, um, it was actually really encouraging and kind of revolutionizing to me because I come obviously from a Western culture who's more guilt and innocence. And so when I think about the gospel and when I share the gospel with someone, I'm often thinking through the lens of like I'm guilty before God, you know, he's the, the just judge. Um, there's a penalty, there's justice and stuff like that. But when, when working with international students, most of them don't come from this worldview, right? So they're thinking, not that they don't, I think that there's like a spectrum of worldviews, so it's not always 100% one worldview and 100% not that worldview. So we all feel um, an aspect of guilt and innocence, but with international students, that's not really their heart worldview, if that makes sense. And so the majority of the students that we work with that are coming to the US come from this honor and shame background. So I thought um, briefly I'd focus more in on honor and shame. So behind me, 
Um, you can see honored is defined as, um, let's see, the evaluation of a person's trustworthiness and social status. Um, individuals are assigned worth and stature based on their personal or family reputation and the harmony of their actions with the expectations of the society at large. So there's many different ways that honor can be achieved. Um, for example, honor can be ascribed. That is kind of you're born into this honor and it's ascribed from your family heritage, your genealogy, or simply by being a little bit older in age um, with gray hair, kind of comes more honor in a lot of countries. Um, on the flip side though, honor can also be achieved through working hard, through piety, having upstanding character, being courageous, earning lots of money, or by being very generous with one's time and resources and stuff like that. Um, so there's, in honor, shame, and cultures, honor is kind of like everything. That's kind of the goal of life is to receive honor and to bring honor upon yourself and your family and those around you. Um, on the flip side, though, shame can be defined as dishonor, disgrace, condemnation as the result of not meeting the expectations of society or an authority. So similarly to honor, shame can be brought on by one's family members, as it is, it is ascribed, or it can also be achieved. Um, shame in a Western mind, I think at least for me, is very difficult to grasp. When I think of shame, I don't often think of like this terrible worst thing, but um, shame in this culture is considered to be a social phenomenon. It's equivalent to being um, disgraced or humiliated. In an honor-shame culture, shame is also to be avoided at all costs, so I'm sure that some of us here have maybe heard about honor killings. Have you heard about honor killings in the Middle East and stuff like that? So in those societies, um, in order to restore the honor to one's family, the family will take it upon themselves, the obligation to, to do whatever it takes necessary. Um, I forget exactly what year, but a little years ago, I should just say, in South Korea, um, the president of South Korea had something shameful happen. Um, and so he got on national news and he said, I'm so sorry, I've lost my face before you. And then he jumped off a mountain and committed suicide um, in, an in an attempt to basically try to restore at least a little bit amount of his honor. And so this is a really big deal um, in most of the world. But like I said, I think from a, coming from a Western culture, it's very hard for us to understand kind of just how big this idea of honor and shame really is. Um, and so this next slide I have kind of demonstrates some of the differences between a Western lens of culture as compared to a, an Eastern lens. As you can see in the Western culture, um, guilt controls. Guilt is often brought upon by someone breaking the law or the social norms of justice, whereas in the Eastern culture, shame controls. Um, you can also see there in the Western culture, we're more focused on the individual, whereas in the Eastern cultures, it's more of like a, a society or a collectivist culture. Um, wrong is punished in the West by law enforcers, right, by going to jail and the police officers and the judge and Supreme Court and all that, whereas in the East, it's often punished by the family or the tribe, like I mentioned about like the social uh, honor killings and stuff like that. Um, and actually in the West, often we view shame as just kind of, if someone is shamed, we just kind of pity them. If anything, we don't feel this heavy weight. Um, so as as we begin to meet with these people, we kind of try to put ourselves into their shoes to try to um, uh, put on their pair of glasses, if you will, of their worldview so that we can better relate to them. Um, and so for the last little, I guess you could say, semester, I've been taking a class actually on Middle Eastern studies. Um, it's an online class from Bridges International, and it's a training basically on how to best reach out to Middle Eastern students, specifically Muslim students. Um, and in this, we've been talking a lot about just shame and honor and a lot of these things, even though I've kind of known this 
um, the little pieces had been falling together. One time, I was discipling a little a Chinese guy in Chicago. His name was Sean. Um, we would meet up each week for about an hour and a half, and we'd read through different stories in the Bible, and we'd go through different questions and stuff like that. And about um, maybe a year and a half into our friendship, one day, it was like probably May, I think it was one of the last times that I saw him before he flew back to China. And we were studying through the scriptures, and he said, Luke, I think that the Bible is true. I think that all this is true. But he said, I just can't bring myself to believe it. And I was thinking to myself, like, what? You just said, and so I was all excited, but then also confused. And so we started talking about it, and he's like, Luke, <clears throat> he's like, if this is true, he's like, that means that my whole entire family is, is perishing apart from Jesus, and they're all going to die in their sins. And so we talked about that, and he said, Luke, I think that this is true, but he said, I don't think I have what it takes to convince my family that this is true. And he said, I would rather perish apart from Christ with my family than to accept this and know and live for the rest of my life knowing that they may be perishing and are lost. And so that, for me, really kind of instilled just the idea of how much these cultures view honor and shame um, and different things like that. And so just for the, for the last um, little bit of my talk today, I kind of want to focus in on a tool, which I think can be very helpful, helpful when you're ministering to not just international students, but really anybody, and that is just the power of a testimony. Because we all like stories, right? Who doesn't like stories? And we like um, often to talk about ourselves anyway. And so testimonies, I think, are just a unique chance for us to share about the amazing story of how God has been drawing us and how he has brought us into his family and his t into his kingdom. Um, and so I think that there's often, obviously, different types of social settings call for different types of testimonies, right? So you might have what they say, like the elevator speech testimony, which is like two to three minutes, where you only have a few minutes. Um, like in Chicago, for instance, if I was waiting for a train, you might have two to three minutes with someone. Other instances, you maybe are asked to speak 20 to 30 minutes. Um, but really, testimonies can kind of be boiled down, I'd say, into three parts. There's the before, your life before you came to Christ, right? Then there's kind of the how which is specifically what happens, the good news of the gospel, and kind of what happens at the point of conversion, and explaining that to them, and also then the after, which is your life after you have surrendered your life to Christ. Um, and so in this Middle Eastern class we were doing, one of my assignments was to, um, to change the way that I worded my testimony to better fit a different worldview than mine, which was honestly, it seems like a simple concept, but it kind of blew my mind, and I was like, wow. And it was actually really hard for me to do because when I share my testimony, because like my heart culture is this innocent and guilt um, mindset. And so when I share the gospel with someone, I'm often talking about how um, I felt this tremendous weight of guilt for my sin, that there's nothing I could do to work away my sin and that there's a penalty, right, that had to be paid. Whereas in, as we've been talking, these other cultures, they don't really resonate with that because they're thinking shame and honor. And so they basically challenged us to reword our testimony to better relate to the heart like worldview and culture of someone else. And so um, it can be pretty simple. Um, you just have to kind of reword, like that video was saying, you just have to, rather than talking about this guilt and this innocence, not that you don't talk about that, right? Like Westerners like to use Romans oftentimes as one of the most popular books preached because we really resonate with the logic of it. Um, it's just laid out. Whereas in these other cultures, um, talking about the prodigal son and the woman at the well can be very powerful tools. And so this next slide here, um, has some helpful honor and shame terminology um, in how to share. So rather than focusing on just the justice of God and the guilt that our sin has brought, we can talk about how God um, is perfect. He's, he's like the definition of honor, right? Other words up there, it says like um, he has all glory and renown. So you kind of start with God. So you start with 
using, bringing up God's honor because he is worthy of our honor, right? And then he's created humans who have broken the relationship. And in part, because of that, they've brought shame upon themselves and separation. Um, so then you can focus in on the shame that your sin has brought. And then you can transition to the answer, which is how Christ came and died for us to cover our shame and our guilt, to restore us to honor and, and adoption into his kingdom. And so those are some helpful um, terminology. And so I think just for the next maybe four or five minutes, I'm going to have you guys turn to someone next to you and we're going to try this. That's just a practical takeaway. We're going to try to share our testimonies, maybe a two to three minute testimony, but try rather than focusing on this innocence and justice, focus on using terminology of shame and honor. And then I'll bring us back together again in like a couple minutes. So anyway, I know we didn't have much time to try that, but just out of curiosity, how did that go? Was it easier than you thought it'd be? Was it harder than you thought it'd be to share in a different kind of worldview? A little bit harder maybe? Yeah. So I'll say like when I did it, it honestly, it was like hard because when I even share it, it's not necessarily resonating with my heart like it does when I do my own world, old worldview. So like, for instance, back in Chicago, when I would sit down with many, many students each week, I would share and I'd be getting all bubbly and excited uh, you know, we're guilty before God, and I'd be, you know, preaching and all this stuff. Like 45 minutes maybe into a discussion, you'd ask this Chinese student, like, does that make sense? You know, and they're like, no. And you're like, no. And I'm all excited, and they're just, you know, not, it's just kind of going over their head. And then other times I've gone to, like, the University of Chicago, and I'll sit down with, like, some Chinese PhD student. I'm like, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to try this. Like, I've learned this, but I, I'm going to try it. So I'm sitting there, and I'm talking about how, our sin has brought shame and guilt and how your honor can be restored through Jesus and stuff like that. And while I'm sharing it, my, in my heart, I'm just thinking like, man, this sounds so weird and it's not making sense, but I'm still sharing it, you know, the smile. And then after that, you just see their face like completely light up and they're like, wow, my honor can be restored from the shame I'm feeling. And it's just amazing that when you cater it to their worldview, just how more receptive that they are to it. Just like when you heard the gospel, I'm sure you heard it. Um, more catered to a Western mindset. So I know we didn't have much time today. There's much more stuff I could talk about when it comes to ministering to internationals, but I think that this is just a helpful, pretty practical tool um, when you're ministering to not only Americans, but also just internationals to, to be able to share your testimony in like a culturally relevant way. So I think that's all we have for time, right, James? Okay, so I'll, I'll close this in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you have answered the prayer Lord, of whoever it was that wrote that prayer, Lord, in the 1940s, and that you have not only answered it, Lord, but that you've um, more than doubled it, Lord. You've brought 1.3 million international students to the U.S., Lord. I just thank you, Lord, even for the students that you've sent um, quite literally, Lord, to our doorstep here at MSU. Lord, you're sending so many different people, Lord, from over 110 different countries, Lord, many of which who are from um, unreached people groups, Lord, or countries that are closed off and hostile to you. Lord, I just pray that you would give us courage, Lord, to, to reach out of our comfort zone, Lord, and to befriend international students, to love on them, Lord, to serve them, and ultimately, Lord, to, to share with them in a contextualized way what it means to know you as our Lord and Savior. Lord, we pray that the students, Lord, would come um, to having a saving relationship with you, Lord, and ultimately, Lord, that they would go back to their countries as ambassadors for Christ, Lord, and that they would um, spread your kingdom, Lord, even in countries which are unreachable, Lord, by Western missionaries. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And then really quick, just in closing, just a really funny last little video clip. Um, 
Even the secular world sees how important culture is. So here's a really quick Good to know about culture, so thank you.